Underdog Collectibles is an online shop run by collectors and for collectors. Join them every Sunday, Tuesday, and Thursday night as they break new products, talk sports, and hopefully you'll pull a great hit to add to your collection. This week they'll be breaking Topps Chrome Baseball, Chronicles Basketball, and Gold Standard Football. Check them out at www.udogcollect.com and tell them Wax Pack Hero sent you. Remember, always bet on the underdog. You're listening to the Wax Pack Hero Sports Card Minute, a podcast where we discuss both the hobby and business sides of collecting. I'm your host, Mike Summer, and I want to help you buy, sell, and trade your way into a collection you'll love. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Wax Pack Hero Sports Card Minute. Something that I feel strongly about is that we all need to take a second and learn from our past. There's things that we're experiencing today that we like to think in our minds are the first time that anyone has ever come across that situation. And frankly, that's just not true. And in the hobby, we've got the same thing. There's things going on now that are topics of conversation that have been around for a long time. There's similar things that have happened in the past that we can all learn from. And so I wanted to bring on Rich Klein to talk about some of those things. Uh, Rich has been around forever. He's got a lot of perspective on the history of the card industry throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And so I wanted to bring him on today to have a little bit of that conversation. But I can't start the interview without giving a shout out to Starstock again. I continue to sell cards on Starstock. You know, a lot of people talk about the notoriety of those high dollar cards that are selling well there. That's not really what I've got listed. I've got low dollar cards in my most recent sales. Even just overnight, I sold several more first Bowman cards for between 50 cents and $2. And those low end cards continue to sell. And when you have zero listing fees, you get those cards on there for nothing. Your postage is the only thing in there. And to be able to make 50 cents to $2 on some of these lower end first moments is great. So I love Starstock. I would encourage you to check it out at www.starstock.com. Learn a little bit more and see if it fits into your overall model of buying and selling cards. At this point, I'm going to go ahead and roll the interview with Rich. It's important for us to keep the perspective of learning from our past and recognize that a lot of the questions that are on our mind today are things that are not necessarily new in the hobby. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that. And I can't think of a better person to talk about that with than to bring Rich Klein back on the show to talk a little bit about some questions from our hobby past. So welcome back to the show, Rich. Thanks. I, I do think Dr. Jim might be a little better on some of this, but I'm, I'm all right. Yeah, yeah. He kind of knows what he's talking about, I guess. Yeah. That, that might be another option that, that I could get his perspective at some point, too. First of all, you know, I was kind of wondering, back in 1980, what was the industry conversation like when people started to realize and find out that Donruss and Fleer were going to be coming into the market and that Topps was no longer going to have that baseball card monopoly. I'm going to paraphrase something I wrote 40 years ago because I don't remember the exact verbiage. Sure. Uh, Baseball Hobby News would send out questionnaires to the dealers with various hobby questions along with their price poll. And one of the questions was there's going to be more products in 
1981. What do you think? And I said, collectors have to be careful. We might be spending $50 to get all three sets in 1981 compared to the 10 or $12 we spent in 1980. And I don't know what's that going to happen to the market because that's an extra $40, $50 a year out of collectors' budgets. Well, today it's a $400 or $500 out of collectors' budgets at a minimum when I'm hearing what some of these basketball wax boxes are going for upon release. It's like, whoa, wait a second. And I'm, I know that's happening in some of the other sports, but right now basketball is the primary one that's exploding. But it, we had that in 1981 where the the market exploded in terms of how many cards were out there and you, you had to spend the multiple of what you did even just one or two years before that. That, that kind of leads to a kind of a parallel question maybe that as you, as you answer that, was there that many collectors that hobby shops could stay open when you had one product that cost 15 or $20 to, to acquire and then you know those people going back obviously and still collecting sets from the past but was the market customer base that big that even with those limited quantities of products that it, it allowed them to stay in business and thrive Many of the hobby shops of of that period and then a few years later it changed where i'm going to call part-time ventures sort of like your store what you're going to end up doing with your store with limited hours. My, you know, I talk about my mentor, Tom Reed. He had his original hours when he opened in the late, late seventies or mid seventies was Monday and Friday night, six to nine, Saturday, 10 to two. And he'd be closed for, you know, the big shows he attended. He's open 10 hours a week. Officially. He might be in the store a little more puttering around, but he was not full time when the first sports card store in the country sports corner located in the Montvale Mall in Montvale, New Jersey was open. They only had limited hours too because the Montvale Mall was not a 20, was not 10 to six every day. I think it was Thursday through Sunday it was open. So most of the stores had somewhat limited hours. So you didn't have the same, you have to be open 10 to five, 10 to six. You know, when I go to triple cards, triple cards is... 11 to 7 Monday through Friday and 10 to 6 Saturday. Uh, right now, I think Nick's cards is 10 to 4, 11 to 4, <laughs> 11 to 5, 10 to 5 um, every day, maybe a little different on Sunday because Dallas has stricter regulations right now or had stricter regulations. So that's because they have a lot more product. In those days, you had less hours the stores were open, and your shows were much more work-on-your-set-based. Most of the dealers in those days were not full-time dealers. They were collectors that sold their extra inventory. And that was actually true of the store owners, too. You had to start somewhere for your inventory. You weren't ordering from Tops because the mail order from Tops, you, you, there were people, respectable vendors, doing great jobs, selling sets for $12, $15. Okay. How about if you think even further back, you know, was there a conversation in the 60s and 70s because of some of the older sets that Fleer had put out? You know, they dabbled in sports in the 60s. Um, Donruss had some non-sports products that were out, you know, prior to that. So they weren't necessarily brand new names in 1981. Was there much conversation in the 60s and 70s about wishing that we had more than just tops? 
No, because most of the people in those days were just trying to figure out what we had. If you ever look at the correspondence with the Buck Barkers of the world, uh, the people, the Frank Nagy's of the world, the people who were trying, who are our hobby pioneers of those days, they weren't trying to say we want more. They were just trying to figure out what already existed, you know. And that's we're still figuring out what exists to this day. But in those days, we didn't have half the research capabilities we had. The only research capabilities we had, Jefferson Burdick did the American Card Catalog, and that that card catalog was a great step forward and is nothing like the card catalogs of today, you know, with the names of the players and the sets and descriptions of what the sets are. So there's a huge difference of what was going on 50, 60 years ago and what's going on today. What about, you know, one of the things that's a popular topic on some podcasts and even the About the Cards guys had Paul Lesko on last week to talk about some of the the legal issues and some of the legal cases that are going on in the hobby today. Were people talking about the Fleer lawsuit in the 70s? Not really, because it, was, it, was, it took 18 years for that to get done. So you're not going to be talking about that every day. That's not really a big issue in, you know, until it actually started getting to fruition in the late 70s and then 1980. But in the 70s, nobody really talked about the Fleer lawsuit. It sort of was just there. You know, and it sort of wended its way for years. And it took 18 years for some judge to say, you know, this monopoly should not exist. And because Tops beat back Fleer after 63. Yep. You know, the only active player Fleer has before their one attempt in 63, they, they had that contract with Ted Williams. So the 60 Fleer set actually has an active player, Ted Williams in his final year in the major leagues. But other than that, there's no active players in Fleer until they try 63 with the first series, which turns out to be the only series. You know, so today you, it, you deal with exclusive licenses and it doesn't matter, you know, people have a different answer for every sport, but people long for the days of upper deck. People long for the days of having another manufacturer, tops Chrome back in football, whatever it might be. Back in the in the sixties and seventies, were were people longing for the days of Bowman? Even into the eighties, we will talk about go play with your tops and Bowmans. So there was always that Bowman was a big name then, Justin, because the collectors bought Bowman because the people who were buying cards, let's say the people your age who are coming back to the hobby, collected Bowman when they were kids. Well, they're going to buy Bowmans in nineteen seventy five. So there is a wistful record, you know, of Bowman. And I mean, if you look, I don't want to say they're all based on Bowman, but I, I think something like 76 SSPC, if you ever look at the design, is, is similar in a way to 53 color Bowman or 53 black and white Bowman, except they're in color. The full color front, the no name on the front, the, the back doesn't have stats, the back has a bio for the most part, and then just the previous year's stats. But if you think about 76 SSPC as the grandson of 53 Bowman Color, that's, to me, that's a nod of, we understand, you know, the best of the Bowman sets look like that. And so there is something where collectors may not have been actively saying, we want to have a Bowman set, but in the back of the mind, they're saying, you know, Bowman wasn't so bad. Let's, let's, get, let's see if we can do a set. And Remember, we had one set a year for the most part. Yep. We had tops. And once tops came out, 
you either, you either bought the packs or then, you know, the hobby was starting to grow or then, okay, let's go back and buy, you know, I grew up in New Jersey. We had a hobby in New Jersey. You know, we talk about Dallas. Jim did the very, Jim and his friend Gervis Ford and a couple other people did the first card show here in, in Dallas in 1974-75. You have, you have shows just beginning. You have stores. Sports Corner begins 74-75. You know, you, you, you have a gestation of what's going to go on, but you don't have the, the hobby the way we have it today. And in terms of bringing back things, and I always point out, the licensors are very happy with one licensee. That, they, they want one licensee. They don't want tons of licensees. The, the man who was best man at my wedding had, had for a couple of years an NFL license for photos. And they loved him. And they said, and, but he doesn't have it anymore. And they basically told him, we love you. We have 300 licenses. We want to have 30 licensees. You're not bringing enough money in. You're not doing enough. And while we love you and you've always paid on time and we never had an issue, dealing with 30 people is a lot easier for us than 300. Another thing that I was wondering is, were there new technologies or distribution approaches in the past that quote unquote threatened to end the hobby like many claim about the internet today? You know, so I'm thinking of the advent of computers, a home shopping network, mail order, cards being available in bulk at Sam's Club or, or you know, those wholesale club type things. Were there other kind of technological advances that people were just getting up in arms about? Well, Sam's Club was in Sam's Club in Jersey. We, we called the BJ's Wholesale Club, I believe. That was really an 80s thing. I okay. mean, the dealers would line up if they knew the Tops was or Donruss or whoever was in, you know, the wholesale club, if they were coming in, they'd line up the day they showed up at the store and they'd buy whatever they could buy. They'd buy the cases and then they'd bring them to their store to resell. And But that wasn't such a big deal because, again, the price, the PT, the BTE, the barrier to entry, you paid 10, you sold it for 15 or 20. Most of us, even in those days, could afford 15 or $20 for a box. So the barrier to entry was not so high. I saw Brian Gray recently on Sports Card Live talk about how he saved up money to buy 87 Donruss cases at a at a local wholesale club here in Dallas. And then basically his BTE, that was he had saved up money. And then he used, because it was such a ripe rookie class, he used that money to start generating money for his business. Sort of like what you did. I mean, he did the same thing. He used only that money, money he had saved. So, I mean, it, it was, so, but he used that to become, start making it a self-sustaining hobby. And so thinking about that, he's very similar to you on that. But nobody really objected to the, the wholesale clubs. Home Shopping Network doesn't really start selling cards big time until the mid or until the mid '90s, and the hobby was decreasing in those days or the early '90s. We watched Shop at Home. I'm sorry, in the late '80s, but their prices were so high that people in the hobby laughed at it. It wasn't like they were competing on a price level; they were way higher because they had to buy from the same people you did, and they had to spend so much more money to get their message out. They couldn't be cheap. And I mean, if you've ever seen Don West do his routine, mm-hmm. it's hilarious in one way and sad on another is some of these people who bought that thought they'd get rich from it and they didn't. But really the biggest issue we had and it really goosed up prices 
and it's an it's in a more obscure set, not super obscure. 1980 OPG is perhaps the toughest OPG set after 1977. 77 till they stopped doing OPG. 80 is by far the toughest set. There was a postal strike in Canada, mm-hmm. so nobody got their cards. So 80 OPG was actually a tough set because there was a postal strike. That was one of the biggest issues of the time, which is which sounds strange to say, but the real the technical eBay. And the rest of the internet, which really started coming 95, 96, 97, that showed how not rare certain cards were. Because if all you did was do mail order through places like Sports Collectors Digest, you know, or places like that, or, or you only went to the shows, you only got to see a very limited part. All of a sudden, you got to see everything. And it showed what cards are really tough and what cards aren't so tough. So did people who took advantage of, you know, the technology at the time of even if it is mail order or taking orders over the phone nationally, right? Instead of it just being a localized market from a local shows or uh, local hobby shops, did those people who took advantage of that kind of nationwide presence, did, it sounds like they would have had a leg up on on they, some of they, their they, other I mean, peers. Somebody like, somebody like Larry Fritch had big distribution because he would take the ads and the sporting newses and a lot of the mainstream mainstream publications, not just hobby publications. So he reached a wider audience. So yes, they had a leg up and they could charge a little more because they had a leg up, but nobody really objected to what anybody was doing because we were all cut from the same mold, so to speak. Last question off the top of your head. Are there other issues that you can think of that are hot issues today that are on everyone's mind today that are essentially just the new version of another issue that that existed in the 60s and 70s? You know, I talk, you know, I talk sometimes to Paul. Paul Metlesko and I trade DMs sometimes when he brings up something and I, I always try to give him historical perspective. And one of the issues that's going on are these second tier, I'll call them second tier card companies that buy, not, and that's not the right term, but card companies that buy cards to repackage the, um, I, you know, I know Brian Gray does it through, you know, he spends good money to buy his cards. So I'm not saying Brian, but I'm trying to say that there's a level below that where they buy the cards and they have the players sign them and they, they put them back in the packs. I forgot which company that was. We went through that in the 90s when Classic Scoreboard did that. And and that was found to be perfectly fine because the players and everybody had already received their money. Once you received your money from the licensors or the licensees, you can do whatever you want. If I buy a bunch of 69 tops and I've had, you know, some players from the 60s at my shows, I've had some players from the 70s and 80s. Uh, Lindy McDaniel is a great desk. desk. And if I bought 100 Lindy McDaniel cards and I had them sign them all and I repackaged them as the best of Lindy McDaniel, that's perfectly fine. Lindy's agreed to sign. The cards have been already processed and paid for. Guess what? There is nothing wrong with that. So that issue actually came up 20 years ago, for example. Okay. That's perfectly fine to have somebody buy a card, sign it, and then put it in the pack as a repack. You know, that's there is no legal issue with that unless somebody changes the rules 20 years later. 
Well, thanks, Rich. I really appreciate you coming on and, you know, sharing some of that perspective. Like I said, I think there's so much that we can learn from our past and the hobbies past and keeping that perspective that many of the things that we deal with today are, are not new issues. They're things that have been bounced around in the past. And while the outcome or where we go with it today might be different than where we went in the past, I think keeping that perspective is something that's important. So thank you for coming on and sharing your wisdom. Thank you for having me, Mike.